top of the inning to you. Welcome to the Irish Baseball Podcast, brought to you by the Irish American Baseball Society. If you love baseball and if you love Ireland, stay tuned for a discussion of all things Irish baseball. Hello and welcome to episode 44 of the Irish Baseball Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Becker, but today I'll be sitting back and playing the role of guest as Brian McArton interviews me about my recent pilgrimage on Ireland's National Famine Way, and we will also talk about a ton of other topics. Thanks for doing this, Brian. Uh, No problem. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Looking forward to getting this done and learning about what you have going on and hearing somebody actually ask you the questions for once instead of you asking the questions to everybody else. So it should be fun. I don't know if I will like it more because I have to do less preparation or if I will like it less because I have less control. So we'll find out. <laughs> if it makes you feel, if it makes you feel any better, I did zero preparation. So we should be okay. <laughs> Fantastic. Let's get into the whole thing. The common link that we have between each other here is the big link we have between the Irish American Baseball Society. I got involved in it earlier on with uh, John Fitzgerald, who you know, and John's a great guy, and he's a local guy up by me, and we did a lot of stuff earlier on, uh, 10, 15 years ago. John and I worked on the Emerald Diamond movie together. Um, John brought me in. We did music for the Emerald Diamond movie and stuff like that, and that's how I got involved. So my question is how, how you got involved in the Irish American Baseball Society. Yeah, that is a fantastic question. So I had been following the Irish American Baseball Society on Facebook because... I found out about it because of the movie, The Emerald Diamond, and I was just following on Facebook, and I had started another podcast, a completely different podcast, when John sent out the feelers for somebody to host an Irish baseball podcast on the Facebook page, and I'm like, well, if I've got the equipment and I'm already learning how to do this thing, I mean, I have over 25 years in radio broadcasting, but... This was my first foray into podcasts, and I thought if I cast a wider net, if I did two podcasts at the same time, it would sort of help me develop all of those skills, and I've really, really enjoyed it. And at this point, it's not even about developing skills. It's about hearing all these different stories and talking to all these different people about baseball, about Irish history. It's really taken me in a lot of different directions and that's how i got involved i just sent him an email on facebook right yeah it's it's crazy how how many people this thing is linked together you know people of all walks of life uh have really jumped into this whole thing that john's put together and with the baseball society and the board have put together um you're talking about radio something that seems to be like it seems like 20 30 years ago everybody wanted to be on the radio no that was the big thing everybody wanted to be on the radio with the change of podcasting and all that other stuff i'm sure This is kind of like the next evolution for you as being somebody who was in radio before. You know, I was thinking about this yesterday, just yesterday, actually. It really feels like the people who were doing radio because they wanted to make money or because they thought it was an easy way to get into the local scene or something like that. They fell off when radio started to die. But the people who really loved the art of broadcasting made their way into podcasting and It's so similar in some ways to what I was doing in radio. I mean, I was in sports radio for over a decade, and I'm talking about sports here on the Irish Baseball Podcast. So it's similar in that respect, but it's so different because even though John does run the society, like it is John's baby here, still he gives us so much more control than you would have 
from a program director at a radio station or when I was a sports director for a statewide news network than my news director would ever have given me. And it's really fun to have all that autonomy to go out, find interviews, find stories that I think are particularly interesting and share them because I never would have had that opportunity if I would have just stuck to radio. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, my father is a ham radio guy. He's gonna if he he's never gonna see this or listen to this because he's just not that guy. But my father is the ham radio guy. His house looks like a bomb shelter of radios everywhere, floor <laughs> to ceiling. I have guitars. He has radios. You know, and so I grew up with him in the other room, trying to reach the guy on the other side of the world and having conversations. My dad was essentially doing his own radio show when I was a kid, but we lived in an area where we were so I'm from the city of Yonkers in New York, right? So where I lived growing up was at the highest elevation in the city you can be at. So we were picking up radio stations, FM radio stations all over the place that we wouldn't get anywhere else. So I was listening to college radio in Jersey, in some parts of Pennsylvania, you know, some parts of, and in all of new, all those New York college radios, um, WFUV 90.7, you know, the Fordham radio station that has the Irish radio program on Sundays. So I was like a big fan of radio growing up and, and the evolution of podcasting has just made it so great for, for everybody. And the fact that you can kind of niche in and what you really want to listen to now is really cool. I started podcasting basically during the pandemic, like when the pandemic was at its biggest peak and everybody was sitting at home and we didn't know what we were doing with our lives. And it helped me get through a rough time. Like that was a tough time for me. I lost a lot of jobs. I lost multiple jobs because of the yeah. pandemic. Yeah. And I was sitting at home. I didn't have anything to do. And I just started doing Zoom calls with people that ended up becoming podcast episodes. And between this podcast and my other podcast, like I have some of my best friends in the world now. And I wouldn't even know them barely if I didn't start this podcast or the sure. other podcast. And it's such an interesting thing how we reached out and we made more connections during a global pandemic when everybody was sitting in their basements. I, I hear these stories all the time of people finding that thing during the lockdown. And obviously, depending on where you were living, everything was different. Some places shut down longer, some places were shut down, you know, all, you know, that's the whole other thing in itself. I can't relate to that because during COVID, I'm a, so my day job is I'm, I'm a 911 dispatcher. During COVID, I was working 80 hour work weeks and like, so everybody was telling me about how they were doing all this cool stuff. I'm like, man, I'm just trying to get to bed. <laughs> like, I'm trying to see my kids for 10 <laughs> seconds. Uh, hey guys, nice to see you. I'll see you next week. And I was right back to bed. And I was like, at one point I was like, I'm kind of jealous of these people getting, uh, getting locked down. I was like, I want to be locked down. This is crazy. <laughs> Well, to be fair, I live in Florida, so we weren't locked down for very right, long. But exactly. I do understand what you're saying. My wife was working a full-time job the whole time. She didn't have the quote-unquote luxury. Now, looking back on it, it was a luxury. But sure. when you were going through it, it felt so uncertain. And you were just trying to do anything to distract yourself because you didn't know when you were going to be able to go back to work. And that's a really weird feeling. Yeah, it, it was, there was a lot of uncertainty. And obviously the difference between Florida and New York are leaps and bounds, the way that things were handled. But, you know, I think you really hit it on the head there with the uncertainty thing. I think that's really what it was that got people. You were talking about 
losing multiple jobs. And that was something when I had talked to John and, you know, we had reached out to each other. John had mentioned to me that you have a bunch of unique jobs in, in relation to sports and stuff. And I wanted to see if you wanted to touch on some of those. Yeah. So we'll be talking in a little bit about my trip to Ireland and my pilgrimage in Ireland. And I knew that I had that coming up for about two years and I didn't want to take a full-time job where I would have to ask them for two, three months of vacation or that I was going to end up having to quit. So I decided that the better course of action would be to just have a little fun for two years and take a bunch of part-time jobs in sports. And I try not to actually say who are my employers, but I live in the Tampa Bay area, so you can basically figure out my couple of employers. And it's been a wild ride down here. We've had a lot of success very, very recently, and I got to be a part of it because I was working for these teams in maybe it's not the biggest capacity in the world, but I had really steady part-time jobs where I worked for a bunch of sports teams. I also worked as a race director where I was organizing a 5K, 10K race every month, just doing a lot in the world of sports that big sports like professional football and small sports like individual people running a 5k race that takes them an hour to run you know yeah it's really cool and and that's how i always wanted to get into what what you're doing in ireland and and that in that whole thing of like trying to get time off that that has got to be insane in, in general and you have that unique advantage of being able to do that let's get into the meat of it here and let's talk about what you're doing and and why you're doing it and what made you decide on on bringing awareness to this cause of domestic violence and, and a real problem that we have, you know, worldwide, obviously. But what what brought it to you that made it something that you really wanted to dig into? Well, I can imagine now knowing that you are a 911 operator as your full-time job, you are probably bombarded by this more than mm-hmm. most people. You probably deal with some pretty awful situations, but I grew up in an abusive household, and while I was going through that, I knew that when I became an adult, I wanted to make sure that it wasn't something that got pushed aside like it was when I was a kid. I knew that I wanted to raise awareness to this, and I also knew that as somebody who always played sports and was doing things that were sort of stereotypically macho, I wanted to say when I became an adult that it's not weak people who become victims of domestic violence or child abuse. It's not people who can't defend themselves. Sometimes these people are some of the strongest people you'll meet, but they're in tough situations. And I thought that's one of the reasons that I picked something so physically daunting was because I want to say this isn't about being weak or strong. This is about being in tough situations, about trying to get out of tough situations. So I wanted to do this as a way to raise money for CASA of Pinellas County, Florida. It's our local domestic violence shelter. And speaking of sports, one of the things I absolutely love about this organization is at a Tampa Bay Rays baseball game or a Tampa Bay Rowdies soccer match, If you go into the bathroom, either bathroom, the men's bathroom, the women's bathroom, well, I assume the women's bathroom, um, (laughs) there is a sign 
from Casa that says, if you're in an abusive situation, take this opportunity right now and call this number. And it's one of the things that I thought was such a creative idea because when I was in an abusive household, when I was a kid, my father used to take me to baseball games all the time. Now, I don't know if I would have seen that poster in a Reading Phillies minor league baseball game when I lived in Pennsylvania, if I would have called. But the more I would have seen something like that sign, the more I would have realized that I wasn't alone. I wasn't by myself, that there were people who wanted to help. And I think that's such a cool thing that they do, and I don't think they get enough credit for it. <laughs> it really is a great cause, and, and you are when you're talking about like what I do for a living. I mean, I come across this is every day. This isn't like a once in a while thing. I mean, it's multiple times in a, in a day. And, and whether and it's not always a physical abuse. There's a lot of you know mental abuse, and there's a lot of verbal abuse that happens. A lot of stuff involving kids and stuff like that. And it's hard to process on a daily basis for me as somebody who's not involved. I couldn't imagine, you know, with you being somebody who actually experienced this. And I was very lucky not to have that situation in my life. But, you know, for somebody like you who who experiences and being able to go out here and talk about it now as an adult, you know, and, and just go out there and say, hey, this isn't right. And and it really takes a lot on, on from you. And I really respect what you're doing here. So let's get into what you actually did already <laughs> and, and that the, the walk that you've already done and, and a pretty serious amount of mileage that you put on. Um, what made you decide on the location you did? What made you decide to even, what gave you this idea to do the big walk? I know you got into like it being a physical thing and, and being, you know, physically challenging thing, but what made you decide on the, you know, I see, uh, I was reading before you, when we talked about this earlier about the Ireland way thing and what made you choose, choose that location and to, to do this. I'm going to try to go back to my radio days and do the shut up and play the hits. So I'll try to give the <laughs> shortest version of this as humanly possible. All right. So back in 2012, my wife and I were at Target and we saw a $5 DVD for a movie called The Way with Martin Sheen. We decided to buy it because it was $5. That would basically be the price of renting a movie online. So... We watched it, and I was completely enamored. This was Martin Sheen's character walking El Camino de Santiago de Compostela in Spain, or from southern France to Santiago, Spain. And I immediately said, when I turn 50, I'm doing that. Then the pandemic hits, and I take an online Irish class because I'm killing time. (laughs) And I discover the Ireland Way, which was my original intention. I was going to do the Ireland Way, which goes from southwest Ireland to North Ireland. I was going to start in West Cork in the town of Castletown Bear. But within the first week, I suffered a knee injury and we realized that it was not going to be sustainable in the amount of time that I had given myself. I'd given myself like two months to do this, and it was scheduled to be a 40-day thing, but it was not going to be possible. The trail had fallen into disrepair at certain points because of COVID, and some of these small towns along the trail were taking in Ukrainian refugees. Great cause great situation. I'm not complaining that they're doing that at all. First world problem if I were to complain about that situation. But it became obvious to me that I had to find a different trail. So two years of planning on this one trail 
And in three days, I had to completely change course. I had to find a new trail, get on trains, get on buses, and get to the start of the new trail. And that's when I found Ireland's National Famine Way, which may have been a more significant trail to pick because while it is not the same thing, it is similar in the people who took this trail originally, the people who were going from Western Ireland to downtown Dublin were there to get on a boat and try to find a better home situation for themselves. So to follow that trail while raising money and awareness for domestic violence, I felt was so much more symbolic. But more importantly, there weren't as many mountains, so my knees were able to continue walking every day, and I could put in a lot of miles. But going west to east instead of south to north, gave me that opportunity to not have to climb as many mountains, have a flatter situation, and the trail went through more towns, so that made my wife happy because if I did tear something and I couldn't go on anymore, there was a doctor somewhere close. <laughs> how long exactly did you go? Like how many how long did it take you to do it from start to finish? Even with the detour, which by the way, Talk about uh, adapting and overcoming, taking three days to do something you planned all that time. Sometimes the best things happen that way. I would definitely agree that sometimes the best things happen that way. Um, so we're all pretty familiar with Ireland, and we know that it is taller than it is wide. So it was quicker to go the second way. But all in all, it was about two and a half weeks with everything involved. But I did right. have that quick turnaround. So it was unique to get that done. And I sure. was really, really upset. I was sitting on the top of a mountain trying to nurse my knee so I could just get down to the bottom of the mountain. Because going down is harder than going up when, you're, when your knees are hurting, that's for sure. Going down is always harder than going up. <laughs> and I think that is something that a lot of people don't understand, but it very, very much is when you're facing any type of injury. And... When I think about how upset I was that this thing I planned for two years was like falling apart around me when I was on the top of that mountain. But by the time I got down to the campsite where I rested and regrouped that night, I was feeling positive. And that's incredible because the depression I had at the top of the mountain to the optimism I had at the bottom of the mountain were two completely different emotions. It's really great to hear that, that story of having to kind of overcome a little bit. You know, obviously life sometimes throws those curveballs at you, no pun intended with the baseball thing we are, but had you been to Ireland before this at all? This was actually my first time out of the country. So get out of here. Wow. I was experiencing a lot of things for the first time. I was going through customs at the airport and I was trying to explain what I was doing, and the guy there was looking at me like I was insane. I had to go through a lot of stuff for the first time, but it was really, really great. I'll tell you what, I cannot say enough good things about Ireland. Everything I thought I would experience going back to you know, the land of my ancestors, I had no idea how much I would love it there. I was in Dublin for three hours and I'm like, this is my favorite city in the world. Like I <laughs> just can't get enough of this place. Any other highlights of your, of your travel other than the walk, obviously, which was your main reason of being there. But were there any other encounters with people, with the people there or anything like that that really stuck out to you where you're like, wow, this is a really uh, incredible place in the world. 
when I was going to Castletown Bear, which is this tiny, tiny town in West Cork, I was taking a train from Dublin to Cork City, and then I was taking a bus that was going to take me to Glengariff, and then I had to get a cab from Glengariff to Castletown Bear. That's how in the middle of nowhere this little fishing village is in West Cork. But on the train from Dublin to Cork City, I sat with three other people. It was a grandfather, his granddaughter, and a woman who worked for Cadbury. And she was from Brazil originally, and she just up and moved her life to Dublin because she wanted to try something different. And she was absolutely loving Dublin. And having a conversation with these people for like two and a half hours, I think, And they were the nicest people I'd ever met. And I was learning about Brazilian culture and what it's like in Dublin. And she was in a rush, so she didn't bring any Cadbury eggs like she normally does. So I'm still a little mad at her. Deservedly so. Deservedly so, yes. (laughs) And this grandfather was such a unique character. He was dressed like he was about to go to the country club. But every time he laughed, he sounded like, and here's a reference you'll probably like, he sounded like Johnny Rotten every time he laughed. (laughs) And at one point he had to go use the restroom and we just looked at his granddaughter and we were like, how much of what he's saying is actually true? She goes, I'd say about half of the stuff he says is true, but the great thing is he believes all of it. (laughs) (laughs) And it was just those kind of interactions that I never would have had if I would have done a normal vacation. If I just would have gotten on the tour buses and I just would have done the normal stuff, I never would have had those interactions. I sort of forced myself to be in places that I wouldn't have been normally so that I could feel more of what Ireland is actually like than just sightseeing. You know, there's an old saying says, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. And that guy, that guy's living that life there. So you can't, you can't, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of those characters. Um, my wife is from the uh, Woodlawn McLean Avenue section of Yonkers, New York. And if anybody has any sort of Irish American connection, you know where I'm talking about. You know, it's the Golden Street with 30 Irish pubs up and down the street. You know, it's, it's amazing. And, and the Irish culture there is, is so, is so big, especially amongst, you know, a lot of that was all immigrated people that lived in the Bronx. And then when the Bronx started changing, people started moving up to Yonkers and, you know, everything moves around. You know, the Irish adapt like that, you know. You talk about, like, the guy, you know, who has the those characters, those guys that you're talking about, there's got to be 70 of them just living on that street alone. And they're not, and they're in America. So you can imagine how many of those guys are over there, you know, like, telling the story. You're like, I don't think this is true at all, but sounds good to me, man. I like it. <laughs> We're going to continue this conversation in two weeks on episode 45 of the Irish Baseball Podcast. I would like to thank Brian McCartan for conducting this interview today. While we were recording, Brian had the great idea of opening up some old packs of baseball cards with me on Zoom. It's a segment that we're calling Old Stale Gum, and you can see video of that interaction on the Irish American Baseball Society's Facebook page and at irishbaseball.org. Brian will be conducting some interviews with musicians throughout the New York Irish music scene that you will be able to hear very soon 
also at irishbaseball.org. Before we go, I just wanted to remind you that my pilgrimage on Ireland's National Famine Way was partially done to raise money and awareness for Casa of Pinellas County, Florida in the fight against domestic violence. There are no processing fees or middlemen, so every dollar you donate goes directly to CASA so they can help survivors of abuse. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and I would love if you could donate $20 today at casapinellas.org slash walkwithrick slash, that's C-A-S-A-P-I-N-E-L-L-A-S dot org slash walkwithrick slash Using an Irish family name of Doherty as my moniker on this walk was a decision that I made to not give any of the credit for this walk to my abusive father. I just don't want the last name difference to confuse anyone. I am Rick Becker, and this has been episode 44 of the Irish Baseball Podcast. You've been listening to the Irish Baseball Podcast. The Irish Baseball Podcast is a production of the Irish American Baseball Society. Visit us online at irishbaseball.org. And remember, there's no place like home.